Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Tomorrow Comes Today from St James's Place. Now today we're in the studio and we have a number of guests who can help us make sense of some of the noise around COP26 and the imperative of climate change. We've got Marlene Mera, Chief Executive of Globe International. She's worked for more than three decades helping governments and businesses around the world to understand the threat of climate change. We've got Rob Gardner, he's Director of Investments at St James's Place, and he'll be looking at how to engage businesses so that they can maybe adopt more sustainable policies going forward. We've got Professor Gail Whiteman, Professor of Sustainability at the University of Exeter Business School. She's a social science expert, and she looks at how decision makers can be made to change course. And we have Dr Emily Shuckborough. She's Director of Cambridge Zero, the University of Cambridge's major climate change initiative. She leads the UKRI Centre for Doctoral Training on the application of AI to study environmental risks, and she can help us to understand what those models are telling us. Together, we'll be discussing some of the big, key questions around climate change, from engagement to the media's role to some of the new technologies that are opening up. Look, it's fantastic to have you all in the same room. So there's something that I wanted to, 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 to bring in, and we're talking about systemic change, and I'd like some, to, some clarity around that. We are, are we not, talking about overturning 200 years or so of kind of, of, of very narrow focus on roles and responsibilities and governments or, or gov for governments in terms of politicians knowing that they can say something but they don't want to deal with it in the long term because they're they're thinking about four years, or businesses realising that, well, actually, what my shareholders will see there is different to what I'll do to the lake over here, and that doesn't matter, but that does matter. Are we... I mean, is this a, th a thing where we're talking about... Is this one of those conversations where somebody's going to mention late-stage capitalism? Well, I think what you're talking about, actually, is joined-up governance. Right. And joined-up governance for the climate era and for sustainable development. And... We can see joined-up governance in many parts of the world. I mean, when I was in the UK government in the 2000s, we were doing it around sustainable development. We actually had in this country a sustainable development plan, and there was an effort to join up governments. There was science-based policy-making, and then kind of things change because, you know, the, the mood music changes, expectations change. Now we're in a different era now. Post-Paris, the long-term plan is there because the Paris Agreement calls for long-term targets. We now have an emphasis on a short-term target, 2030, because we know that a long-term target is too far. It doesn't match with political cycles. But, and so how do we get out of the bubble? I mean, we talked at the beginning, just before, about uh, Rob Ford in Toronto and about Trumpism and about Johnsonianism and about the idea that, you know, we, people who, or people who concern themselves with such, with such things can know and can educate themselves, but that there are, we may be in a bubble and we have to go out beyond that bubble and we have to persuade a bunch of people who uh, perhaps don't quite understand it yet or perhaps haven't really had it presented in the right way. How the heck do we stop this? Because well, this is I, a, I think... Sorry. Well, I think there's one thing that's really important. We've spoken a lot about raising awareness of the scale of the threat, but um, I, equally important is raising awareness of the scale of the opportunity. So I sit in a university, Cambridge University, there's all sorts of really exciting innovations happening in the university, whether it's in terms of new battery technologies, zero carbon aviation, alternatives to plastic, natural construction materials, digital technology, 
technologies being used in all sorts of different ways. Um, even greenhouse gas removal technologies um, being developed. Lots and lots of excitement. And if we can create a sense that this is, uh, you know, an, an inspiring, uh, innovative place to be, that those are huge opportunities um, for creative solutions, and then for, for significant investment opportunities associated with that, then we change the narrative from one of being one of doom and gloom, which can be rather um, uninspiring, to one of being hope and opportunity and creating a better future. And I think that it's as important to um, communicate that narrative as it is to communicate the narrative around the scale of the threat. And the two together, I think, are a powerful combination. But are we hostage to what you've called the mood music? I mean, it's, it feels like, you know, they're, they're just yesterday we heard a, uh, Boris Johnson talking about subsidies for, for energy-efficient boilers and then going, but your door is not going to be kicked down by some sandal-wearing policeman of political correctness. Uh, and it's not helpful. And we are we hostages to this kind of, um, I suppose, very decadent sense that we could just do nothing because it's a bunch of do-gooders. I mean, how? I, I, I think that, and I think there's also a very strong disinformation campaign that still exists. Right. So on the one side, there is the science voice, there are the progressive business voice, the progressive governments, as you said, climate heroes everywhere. And that's good, but there's a massive climate disinformation out there, and I think the social media companies have to take full responsibility for that. We can see Facebook, Instagram, how they are pushing a different, a different rhetoric out there that, that stops action, makes people think that extreme weather is just something we've always had, uh, that we don't need to act fast, that that will be bad for jobs, um, all these sorts of things, and it's really powerful. Most people do not get their news from established media anymore. They get it online. Now, some of us use what we think are better online media sources, but many others are just looking at what's coming up, whether an older generation is still using Facebook, and many, many are, or it's, it's other forms. So I think this issue of, of social media and the disinformation, they have a whole other narrative that they are pushing forward that is absolutely, absolutely stopping action. So my point was that it's not just about um, preventing the, the disinformation, it's also about positively promoting sure. the stories of the climate heroes, the stories of the new innovations, um, the stories of uh, ways in which you know everyone from individuals to businesses can do things in different ways that are better for the environment, better for society, better for the natural world, have a positive climate impact, better for our health in many instances, um, and better for a uh, bottom line, because many of the examples that we've had in terms of energy efficiencies or, or reducing waste actually save money. So I think it's about promoting those positive stories as much as preventing the disinformation. So I'm, I'm completely with you there, Emily. And I think there's Jim Collins writes in business and he talks about the genius of and and the tyranny of all. <laughs> and I think a lot of this discussion gets caught up in the tyranny of all. And I think what Emily has just described is the and and the opportunity because a lot of the naysayers, and, and I get sort of regularly harassed on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the rest, is what about the jobs? What about this? Mm. So what are all the short-term consequences? So I think just at a very local level, I think, you know, the Earthshot is a great example of shining a light, creating a bright spot about what can be done. And I think there is a lack of understanding that the technology already exists. We already know how to solve these issues. We just need to change our behaviors. However, we know that changing behavior is hard. And I think 
I agree with you on joined up governance, but I also think we need leadership because leaders create a vision of the future that is exciting and positive and create followership that go through that. Whereas at the moment, it's easy to be a, a leader and basically sabotage the narrative to maintain the so status quo. I, I think that none of this conversation would be taking place if we didn't have leadership because there was a mind behind bringing us together to talk about this. And I think in the UK, actually, the public conversation has been shaped by a very different form of media engagement this year. I was absolutely astonished to see that over the summer, we had the sun having green spreads. We had the Daily Express having green spreads. Mm -hmm. The red tops have gone green. Who would have thought it? They've gone green because partly the UK is hosting the biggest climate summit in the world and the most important one. And so the public conversation is much more upbeat. It's much more solutions-led. And I think that innovation has always been the heart of the game. We've been talking up that we are seeing an innovation explosion led by very canny policymaking in renewables. So that now you've got renewables which are cheap as chips. And now we are actually, over the course of the last year and a half, we've seen the collapse of coal. We've seen the collapse of the internal combustion engine. We've seen a whole new opportunity horizon open up. Where I think that conversation needs to be carried forth much more effectively is in the jobs and skills arena. Because that's the thing that people see as a threat most. And that's why having this language around the just transition with the unions engaged, with employers associations engaged, with rank and file, workers engaged, seeing what does my future look like in my sector in a climate resilient world. What about young people today? I mean, just on that, on a very personal note. So my husband was an energy engineer who went to MIT. And he went to MIT, and at that time, 30 years ago, all of this was a vision. They made it happen. My daughter now is applying for engineering schools in the UK, and there is very, very little that's really changed in the last 30 years in terms of what she can be doing. That's a massive gap that we have to close because we can talk until the cows come home about what needs to be done, but every institution has to get behind it and chancellors need to review what there's on the curricula, what's their offering, because if you are a young person now and you're looking for an apprenticeship, engineering, you get the old companies, whether it's Jaguar, Land Rover, whoever it is, the invested incumbents who are offering sustainability, where are the newcomers? So I think this is a job for everybody. And until people actually do their jobs, we're going to be talking about this for another 10 years. So everybody needs to put their shoulder to the wheel and just get on with it. So Robert, is there, is there a, this is really interesting, where you, you, you've got this idea that, you know, I suppose growth can come as a result of being future-facing, and future-facing being resilient because you're sustainable. And so, are we seeing a decoupling, I suppose, of, of sort of pure profit from valuation? Yeah. So, uh, as you know, we've got about you know over 145 billion pounds. Uh, we set a net, so we're part of what's called the Net, net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. So we, we were the first wealth manager globally to join. And at the time, there were 5 trillion. I think there's now 9 trillion signed up to that. We then engage with all of our fund managers. So we don't have a thing as ESG and not ESG. We ensure that's across everything that we do. Equities, which is typically where people do it, but also bonds and also property. So let me pick something really micro, like property. Our fund manager, Orchard Street, last year did the first, it, it took COVID as an opportunity to turn over part of its estate and created the first carbon neutral industrial estate in London. 
what's happened as we come out of COVID is if you have invested in your buildings and properties, the rental differential between a building that has a good bream rating, that has good EPC conditions, has a higher rental yield than one that doesn't. So actually doing the right thing, and guess what? It's cheaper to run and it's more efficient. Not only is the, the running cost, so the rent is higher, the running cost is lower. So that's a very local level in the UK. What we are doing, and then the other part on the positive side, which is kind of the Emily uh, piece, is we're shifting uh, our money to companies that are showing an increasing level of sustainable revenues. And uh, an example of that might be a company like Siemens, again, who are investing massively in renewable energy and, and, and other sources. The, again, with our portfolio, engagement is key. So there's enormous pressure to divest. So I'll take another one of our funds, which is £10 billion fund, enormous fund. I could do a 90% reduction in the carbon intensity of that fund if we sold just two stocks in that portfolio. So the fund manager says, well, Rob, if you have a target, we could just take this out and put something else. The issue with that is, I, I care about this concept called additionality, which is any, if I just sell it, or if they sell it and buy someone out, it doesn't change the problem. Now, yeah, these so are it's two, a systemic view. These, right. these are two yeah, utility sure. companies in the US who, since 2005 to 2020, have had a 50% reduction in uh, their carbon intensity. And we're investing in them and their business plans, and we're engaging with their management team to reduce their emissions by 60% from 2020 by 2025 and by 80% by 2030. Can I come back to the comment about education? Because I think that that is also um, really, uh, really important. I mean, it, you know, clearly, um, we need to be training our young people for the jobs of the future. But I think the other aspect of this is that our young, young people are wanting to move into green jobs in the future. We find in Cambridge that many, many of our students are asking um, for, uh, for, for, for to be able to contribute in, in ways that are going to be helping the planet in terms of um, their future careers. And I think that's a really critical shift that we've seen in the last few years even. And so there's a real opportunity, I think, for those businesses that are most forward-thinking to identify that it is those people with the, the, the talents and skills are going to be attracted into businesses um, that are looking to, to run their businesses in more sustainable ways. Uh, do, you, do we think... I mean, the big elephant in the room here is... is somebody's mentioned COVID and the, the huge disruption that it, it, it placed on a lot of things. You know, before, before COVID, WeWork was talked about as being a, a potential unicorn. After COVID, city centres, not really so much in terms of people looking to work there. It created, did it not, a great moment of everybody having to sit back and, and take a second and go, wait, the way we've always done things, was that so great? And I know, for example, you're talking about um, younger people entering the workplace. We've got people entering our workplace who are saying, well, I don't actually want to come in on a tube five days. What do we do about that then? And it's down to, to, to us and it's down to me as, a, as, their, as their potential boss to go, well, do you know what? I also don't want you to have to do that. that. That wouldn't have been something I could have done before COVID. That wouldn't have been something that I, th I think anybody had a template for. What do you think... COVID has meant, I suppose, mentally or in terms of people's paradigms for how we can discuss. Well, I interviewed climate. a lot of boards um, after and during COVID, so sort of lessons from lockdown. What did they learn? And I, and I was focusing on companies that are progressive in the sustainability space. Those are, that's my network. And fully, 
was the wake-up call. We know a lot, but we don't know a lot about material risk. What are we missing? There was also a discussion, of course, with the board much more regularly than there would be in the past. So the board was heavily involved. They realized they needed to have new governance, they needed to have new data, and they needed to come up with solutions beyond their company. And that really worked. However, my question to them was, is it going to put the, the brakes on your sustainability transition? You know, it's a difficult economic question, and by and large, absolutely none of them said it, it would stop them, it would actually push them forward. They realized that, that climate change and biodiversity loss, these planetary pressures from the Earth's system, were actually the next pandemic threat, right. of which there would be no easy vaccine. So there was a huge movement forward. Now, at the same time, if we take a look at the data, CO2 emissions globally decreased significantly for a period of time right. yeah. and then so started to grow I, again. Yeah, you have to. There was a really interesting um, meeting that I was in recently um, with, uh, with a set of healthcare um, in the healthcare sector where they were talking through the response to the pandemic. You know, when it, when it first hit and, and healthcare suddenly had to react rapidly to a really very high pressured situation. And one of the things that they said that had been really beneficial and a lesson that can perhaps be, be learned was that uh, a lot of the normal bureaucracy was just set aside. And in a sense, it unleashed um, what they were describing as purposeful anarchy. <laughs> um, and, nice. yeah. and I think that there's a real sense in which if we can find ways of organizing businesses, it comes back to this idea of doing business in a slightly different way, organizing businesses that empowers and enables creativity and innovative solutions at all levels of those um, businesses, then that's the sort of uh, place in which we can get the really sort of rapid um, creativity, in creative innovative solutions that we're going to be requiring that, that embody the sort of collaboration that we've been describing as being so central to getting a, a systems change um, on the sort of rapid timescale that's required. So can I, can I just mention one word, and that's vaccines, yeah? Because, of course, the average timeframe for developing a vaccine is several years. But in the context of COVID, we had scientists who came up with it within a record 18 months. Yeah. And that just shows that where there is a crisis mm. and authorities exactly. determined to respond to it, you can have the scientific community which responds, the investors community mm. which responds, and money can suddenly be found in treasuries around in the yes. world. But yes, and it's the scale of that pipeline, because those, those you know, equivalent of vaccine um, developments are on the black benches already in universities around the world mm. and what's required is um, the the investment and in the infrastructure to get them from the lab benches mm. scaled up and out into real world deployment so that so, we can start to drive the changes that are required across society I absolutely agree with you and I think that where so many Western countries in particular were caught napping because they hadn't prepared yeah. exactly. for a zoonotic pandemic there were East Asian countries which already had yes. so we had known already since 2015, we've got this global framework called the Sendai Framework, which is all about identifying and preparing to invest in risk identification and mitigation. But most governments around the world didn't even know what Sendai was. They'd signed up to it, but what was in it? What were the seven focus points? Who knew? But Taiwan, China, a number of those countries in the region had already gone through MERS and SARS, and they knew we can see this coming. We've already got our institutional capacity invested. We've got our populace 
educated about it. So it wasn't a huge surprise to them. So I think the number one thing is, of course, it was a global inflection point. It also was hugely economically disruptive because of the lockdown, people lost jobs. There were 200 million migrants across India who were suddenly told by the government, go back to your villages, your job is lost. So nobody should underestimate the economic havoc and the health havoc that it was caused. But it was fundamentally, it was an inflection point recognizing we have to prepare better for these low probability, high impact events. And especially since the 2018, the big report and the Code Red report this year, I think most people recognize nowadays, decision makers, that we're going to be hit with disasters much more frequently. And just yesterday, the head of the UN's Disaster Risk Reduction Agency said, there is no such thing as natural disasters anymore. We are doing this to ourselves, and we know that the frequency of all these disasters, whether they're pandemics, whether they're, um, you know, climate impact related, floods, droughts, heat waves, whatever, we're doing it to ourselves. We need better investment, better preparedness. And so, the, other, the other thing to say about the pandemic is that, we're, you know, there, might, there may have been warning signs, uh, you know, in terms of SARS and MERS and so forth. Uh, you know, there were certainly people around the world saying that we need to worry about the potential risk of a future pandemic. But in terms of climate change, climate change really is entirely predictable as a threat and entirely preventable as a threat. We know that if we reduce global emissions, then we reduce the risk of future climate change. It, you know, it is really straightforward. And uh, you know, in that context, it is criminal that we're not responding fast enough as a global society. It is that sense, though. I mean, I'm, I, there's a clear sense here that COVID, whatever people say in retrospect, COVID did put governments on a war footing, in a way, you know, in the, in the sense no, that they realised they had to invest and they had to, to stump up. To st Climate change seems to governments to be absolutely a clear threat, but one, I think, that is probably a little more diffuse, a little more slow how do we get them onto this war footing onto the in, into the same way is it something that you know i suppose modeling the different scenarios you know ca can do but we've and, done that right and how we've do we get that. them out of the out of this strange populist right, bubble of denialism it's, it's, it's back to the media manipulation i talked about their product is doubt and how right so exxon in 1980 produced a report with the co2 parts per million in 1980 that accurately predicted in 2020 it would be 420 so exxon themselves by the way exxon invented an electric car in the 1980s mm. electric cars were available the first cars were electric cars yes mercedes daimler benz so we've been able to make electric cars for over 100 years so the rise of the petrodollar, in fact, you've got to go back to coal. So you've got to imagine, you've got to you go back in time and remember that economic growth was basically based on land ownership. And then you had people and you could control those people on that land and that's how you made money. And then we discovered this elixir of life, coal. And once we discovered coal, population growth globally exploded in a way that we've never, you know, we went from a billion to nine billion, like overnight, bam. We have a huge vested interest in oil and gas and petrol. I mean, that's why we have petrodollar, OPEC, and all the rest. So the, 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 the issue is about behaviors and incentives. And I mean, you were talking earlier about 
Kyoto, and you know, we didn't talk about Lord Brown, right? So he was the CEO of BP, and I think at the same time in May 1997, he basically came out and said, "Beyond Petroleum," and and got and got shot down. And then after they left the Global Climate Coalition, yeah, the GCC. And then and then I think after after Bill Clinton, when Bush came in, they all of their <laughs> basically they all pulled out of all of their commitments because the oil and gas company lobbied them so fast. The oil and gas company have spent billions of pounds or millions of pounds investing with people to disrupt scientists. Mm. So the narrative. So part of the issue is how do we create a clear and compelling narrative? Which I, and I, I, you know, my bias is towards the Emily argument, which is we can do this shift because the technology exists. We know how to do this. We can still have our lifestyle. So you can make your. The truth is, when we walk out of here, we're going to walk down on Oxford High Street and we're going to see people going up and down the high street buying stuff. That is a reality that but, we but, have. But, we know, can't stop but, them doing that. But there's that. going to be climate adapt. There's going to be climate adaptation. So I mean, I think there is so much CO2 in the atmosphere now that it, the it, the a number of extreme weather events will increase. And that doesn't mean we can have the same lifestyle now uh, uh, that we actually I, have. And if for many parts of the world, the lifestyle is being affected by extreme weather in massive ways. So I think we have to ha get away from this idea that we have to have our cake and eat it too, that it's always win, win, win. I mean, I think we really are going to have to be kind of grown up and yeah. look at this idea that there's going to be hard choices, there's going to be hard experiences, and there's got to be hard lines. Well, that was with, the narrative with, in 1990. And with, we haven't moved. Well, with no new, uh, no new fossil fuel Emily, development. Yeah. So, so what? You, what I think we need, we need global leadership. We can point the finger at oil and gas sector. We can point the finger at the media. We can point the finger at certain countries for either not doing it enough or at actively um, preventing um, action on climate. But we can all be global leaders ourselves, and that's what's required. Um, we require uh, the sense of a of a different direction, and what, you know, each of us in our own different ways can actually help to uh, to drive that forward. And I think that is absolutely essential. So I want to I want to get away from this sense that not enough has been happening because we have to recognise that since Kyoto, quite a lot has happened. I was at Kyoto. And I remember that at Kyoto, we were looking at global warming in six-degree six world, yeah, 100 years from then. And that's not the world that we have right now. It's because in the interim period, we revolutionized energy systems around the world. We made renewables cheap as chips. And that now that climate transition has got to accelerate in this decade because this is the decade of action, as the UN has said. But importantly, if we don't recognize the work that has been done, we will be leading to even further mental ill health amongst young people. Mm. We've seen results of studies around the world. There was a very major one with the Climate Psychology Alliance, which showed that the majority of young people in 10 countries, it was a larger study, 10,000 people, that young people said that they were feeling very anxious about their future. So we have to, on the one hand, be cognizant that this is a very dire world that our young people are living in. They, fa they face challenges that we never did. But equally, this is a very exciting time to be alive because we are going to create the solutions that are going to help us adapt to a climate reality. And I think that message really has to be heard loud and clear, recognize that we've come a long way. 
It's not been that the world has been standing still for the last 20 years, but we've got a lot more way to go. And let me just remind everyone, in 1900, there were 77 countries in the world. We now have 196 countries in the world. So the magnitude of getting countries, of course, which are microcosms, which have their own domestic politics, we can't simply say to them, get your act together. Yes, we can at COP26, but fundamentally it's for every country to determine what its internal settlement is based on an equitable social contract in how it deals with these risks. Well, that brings us brilliantly, brilliantly to our wish list. We've got two minutes left, so very briefly, for the coming year, two years, from COP onwards, what would we all like to see? What could we ask for? If we have Climate Santa, I wish, accelerating the actions that we've seen, more, I suppose, public efforts to educate people on the possibilities, what do we think as a, as a final point from each, each of you? I think as a, at, a, at a macro level for me, it's really important that the market sends a signal that fossil fuels are the technology of the past and that we need and can deliver a green transition. And unless the markets do that, politicians won't respond. And at a very micro level, I think every single person on this planet needs to recognise it is their job to do something about climate change. Rob. On that, well, look, so I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I think I'll, I'll go back to another piece. I would love to find a way that we put true economic value on nature. I think nature is the finest form of carbon capture sequestration on the planet. There's this vicious circle where more climate change kills more of our flora and fauna. Uh, I'd like to revolutionise the way we think about agriculture and how we feed ourselves. So that's in addition to. So I said, if, if it's a one, two, three, four, it's five, a build. It's, it's a, a build. build. It's a build. That would be mine. This is the, this is the. We're getting out of the tyranny of all. This is our yes and, and, and yes and exactly. What do we think here? From I think it's really simple. No new fossil fuel development investment. Full stop. And there has to be accountability on that. And we have to call out the governments, the companies, the investors that do that as criminal. Wow. I, I, all of this is actually quite exciting. Somebody who saved fossil fuels today in a COVID-compliant manner by not being here. <laughs> well, Emily, what do you think? What would your, what would your wish list be? Um, I think the absolute critical thing is that we have to move from ambition to action and that action has to be towards creating um, the realisation of a vision of a future where we're living in harmony with the world that sustains us. I think this is wonderful. We, we have got here, it feels like we've, we've actually, we've tackled in a very holistic way, in fact, between all, your, all of your points of view or all of, all of the, the expertise fields that you're coming from, the idea of kind of, I suppose, the, the global connectivity of, of politics, the, the evaluation of resources beyond those that show up on a spreadsheet, the idea that we can actually take this and make it, a, I suppose, make the, the commercial political and take this agenda and run with it and the, the technologies and the, and the way forward. If there's... Anything that I've missed, I apologise. I hope we can continue talking about this because I've actually found it's, it's like being in a dream with the best people in the world all around a table. You've been very, very fun, and I've loved the spark. 
any last words or should we, should we close it here? Anything you want to say that I haven't allowed you to say by being too bubbly? No, I, I, think, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I would love to see um, what it sparks in terms of yeah. the conversations and to be invited to be a fly on the wall to witness some of that thinking within the intended audience because then we'll know whether we've made an impact or not. It starts here. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much, everybody.